welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Today I've brought you part two of our look at the trials of the century that took place in the 1900s. I've got a couple of doozies for you this time, so let's jump right in. Yeah. This first story genuinely has it all. So buckle up. Like there's even a couple of uh, Fantastic History alums in this story. Okay. On December 30th, 1905, former Idaho Governor Frank Stunenberg exploded. Exploded? Exploded. Well, I guess more accurately, he was walking through the front gate of his home when he tripped a rudimentary bomb that was made of plaster of Paris that blew him to bits. Oh. Yeah. It's not terribly surprising that Stunenberg had enemies, considering that he won the 1896 gubernatorial election with the support of various silver miners' unions in the state, only to turn around and become their biggest nightmare. Very anti-union, this guy. Mm. Yeah, you can't do that. On more than one occasion, he called in the National Guard and declared martial law when he felt union strikes were getting out of hand. So... You know, investigators are going to have their work cut out for them in narrowing down the list of people who hated this guy enough to kill him. Sure. Fortunately for them, they found the perpetrator the very next day when a waitress at the Saratoga Hotel called in a tip that a customer named Harry Orchard, who came in shortly after the blast, acting like a neurotic weirdo. (laughs) The police searched Orchard's hotel room and found traces of plaster of Paris in the chamber pot. Okay. Now, while that's certainly weird, it's also what we call circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Orchard was insistent that he had nothing to do with the assassination and barely even knew what they were talking about and had definitely never spoken to or worked for anybody from the Western Federation of Miners. Thank you so much for asking. (laughs) To drum up more evidence for a conviction, who else was the current governor of Idaho going to turn to for help but the one and only... Pinkerton Detective Agency. Oh my gosh, it's another Pinkerton episode. It's another Pinkerton episode. I mean, partially, partially. Exciting. And not only did they call in the Pinkertons, but they got none other than James McParland. Now, this guy was a huge deal. He was widely considered to be the greatest detective in all of America. And he was so respected and admired that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, another alum, made him a character in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Valley of Fear. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that he based a character on McParland or named a character after him. What I'm saying is that Doyle wrote Sherlock slash McParland fanfic. That's hilarious. It's amazing. McParland paid a visit to Orchard in jail and managed to draw a 64-page confession out of him where Orchard admitted not only to the assassination of Stunenberg, but also to carrying out no less than 17 other murders on behalf of the Western Federation of Miners. Wow. More specifically, he received his orders from Secretary William Big Bill Haywood, President Charles Moyer, and Advisor George Pettibone for all of these crimes. This is getting deep. Yeah. Yeah. So all three of these guys lived in Denver, where the union was headquartered. Now, the murder was in Idaho, just as a reminder. Rather than extraditing them in a way that was at all normal, McParland said, no, 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 and had the three men kidnapped before they could have a chance to flee or even speak to their lawyers and start planning a defense. Uh. 
this was so let's say unorthodox that the legality of it ended up in the United States Supreme Court who ultimately were like, no, it's fine. This is fine. Oh, perfect. Only one guy pointed out that kidnapping is illegal. Even if you're a Pinkerton detective, you know, we're going to, gosh, we're going to talk later (laughs) in in a future episode about more in depth about Pinkerton and how they were used as anti-union Mm-hmm. goons oh yeah but uh this is like a little preview and how just you know that they, they they were corrupted but <laughs> like the whole system was pretty much uh okay with this oh for sure and it's um his hands are gonna get a little bit dirtier before the end of this story too so these three guys are kidnapped brought to idaho this is when big bill haywood became the star of the show despite being one of three defendants. Now, let me start by mentioning that he was indeed a very big Bill. He was a a super tall guy who like kind of gives me Brendan Gleeson vibes. Like Mm. that Bill, like very similar like face, like he kind of looks like Brendan Gleeson. And he also wore an eye patch, having lost one of his eyes during his childhood. Wow. So like he looks like a character and he certainly is one. When he was arrested, he was actively having sex with his sister-in-law. Like, they busted in on this man, bare ass, in the air, just plowing away at his brother's wife. Yeah. He subsequently used his time in jail to read Upton Sinclair novels and run for Colorado governor on the socialist ticket, for which he actually received about 16,000 votes. Man. Yeah. He would also ended up being the first of the trio to go to trial. And for that, he hired possibly the most famous lawyer ever, Clarence Darrow, who represented Leopold and Loeb. Yes. Wow. Yeah. This, so, this, it really has it all. This episode is like a little clip show it's almost. It's the best of. It, this is the movie 43 of history. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, what a terrible choice. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) But you're right. Yeah, that's the thing. So jury selection took about six weeks. And during that time, the defense team found out that one of their members, now again, of the defense, was actually a Pinkerton detective in disguise who had been instructed to sabotage the entire thing so that the jury leaned heavily in favor of the prosecution. Mm. Oopsie poopsie. You can't do that. No, you shouldn't. Despite all the violence involved, especially if you consider Orchard's confession to having pulled off 17 other murders, the public was actually on the side of the defendants because the case was being boiled down to union versus the corrupt government. I'm sure it helped, too, that Clarence Darrow was on the case because he was up to shenanigans immediately, objecting to things the prosecutor was saying in his opening statement. (laughs) Darrow also engaged (laughs) in frequent sarcastic editorializing, which totally threw the prosecutor off his game and left spectators with the impression that the prosecutor was weak and ineffectual because he couldn't like he kept losing track of what he's trying to say because you got this guy over here going, yeah, right, idiot. That didn't happen. Stupid. I object. You know, getting under the skin and sort of doing the meta playing the meta of the court oh, sure it actually works oh yeah and if you're curious about that just see the oj simpson trial oh a thousand percent like it's not necessarily about it, it, it about the evidence and mm-hmm. all this stuff it's about 
instilling just the right amount of question in the yeah. jury's mind. And it seems that he was perfect. And that's the that. that's the job of the defense attorney. And like something I want to bring up because you hear that a lot. Like, you have to be a complete scumbag to be a defense attorney and blah, 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 blah. And to an extent, in some cases, sure. But you're not up there trying to say, this is innocent. This is a good person. You're just trying to say, you can't prove it. Yep. Eh? Yep. Eh? So something to keep in mind. And that's why Clarence Darrow was so famous because he was great at going, Nah, <laughs> nah, and you know, that's that's pretty much like he went kind of another way about that. So when the prosecutor finishes mumbling and fumbling, Darrow stands up and he's like, "You know, I'm actually going to save my opening statement until the closing statement. Let's proceed," mm. which is a very bold move. Sure. But like, also, this is already a clown show. The prosecution's main witness was, of course, Harry Orchard who broke down on the stand multiple times while discussing all of the violent acts he had committed on behalf of WFM, going all the way back to 1898 when he helped hijack a Northern Pacific train. In addition to all of his successful acts of terrorism, Orchard also confessed to failed attempts at assassinating the governor of Colorado, two Colorado Supreme Court justices, and the president of a mining company on behalf of WFM. Which is like honestly not a great look. Jeez. Yeah, no kidding. Clarence Darrow, by contrast, called nearly a hundred witnesses to testify to Big Bill's innocence. One of the more inflammatory witnesses was Morris Friedman, personal secretary to none other than Pinkerton detective James McParland. <laughs> Friedman testified that the Pinkerton agency had been up to some low down, dirty anti-union tricks for years and had been trying to sabotage the WFM union for a very long time. He had very detailed notes to back this up. Uh Oh, not a good look. Jury deliberation began on July 28th, 1907 at around 11 o'clock in the morning. And they deliberated all through the night, announcing to the judge that they'd reached a conclusion shortly before seven the next morning. Now, I'd like to mention that 11 of these 12 guys were over 50 years old. So I kind of refuse to believe that they didn't use any of that time to sleep. <laughs> like I just, y'all, y'all are getting paid to sleep. You're not going to fool me. You know, you, you, you might as well because... Here's the here's the trick. If you come to a answer early, you don't get lunch. Yeah, that's true. So you got or w- breakfast in this case. Exactly. So if mm-hmm. you and get it, if you if you decide at one a.m., you may <laughs> as well wait until breakfast arrives. Right. They're not gonna they're not gonna reconvene at one a.m. anyway. Exactly. Just catch a few Z's. Why not? You know, as far as the record shows, they deliberated for that full twenty hours, but I do not buy it. <laughs> According to famoustrials.com. As the jury filed into Judge Wood's courtroom, Darrow put an arm around his client and said, Bill, old man, you'd better prepare for the worst. I'm afraid it's against us, so keep up your nerve. Haywood replied, yes, I will. The clerk of court, Otto Peterson, announced the verdict. We, the jury, in the above-entitled cause, find the defendant, William D. Haywood, not guilty. Ah. Haywood jumped up laughing crying he was bear hugging his friends his family his wife and kids who had been there every day his mother had been there every day hugging everybody then he runs over to the jury and starts shaking hands with all of them too he's just like hell yeah brother like get me out of (laughs) here 
George Pettibone was the next up, and Darrow made quick work of getting his not guilty verdict. In the face of that, charges against Charles Moyer were dropped altogether. Hmm. Now, because those three guys weren't convicted, somebody's got to go down for this. The eyes of justice turned to Harry Orchard, the guy who had openly admitted to many, many gruesome crimes, including this one. He'd already testified under oath to being a serial killer and a mass murderer, so it was really no surprise when he was found guilty, although he was sentenced to life in prison instead of death because he had been a state's witness. Right, okay. He ended up serving for about 50 years, died in prison. Okay. Big Bill went on to live a big life, I'm sure, very happy and jolly. Sure. Next up is a Massachusetts story. There you go. (laughs) Yay! One thing that separates the infamous trial of Nicholas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti from most of the other trials on this list is that neither of them were even remotely famous or well-known before the trial. Neither was the victim. That is... What what year was this? We'll get there. But it's it's, it's 1920 when when this happened. That is pretty strange. Yeah, so we're going in sequential order. So this was the... okay. This was technically the fourth trial of the century. The third one I didn't really want to cover because it was assault against a child. Mm. That's something, by the way, guys, um, never going to talk about that. Not interested. Yeah. The only time we talked about it was Leopold and Loeb, which was the first trial of the century we talked about. (laughs) Many, many episodes ago. Yes. But yeah, that's that's not for me. So I skipped over that one. Yeah. Um, So we're already at the fourth trial of the century, 1920. But these are the first guys who were like not public figures in any way. Neither was the guy who died. Like mm. the crime for which they're, you know, the tried, like it wasn't even all that gruesome. It wasn't like they went crazy and they were throwing like intestines everywhere, going full Jack the Ripper, nothing like that. What makes the trial so buck wild that it's still studied and remembered to this day is the defense attorney they hired and like the lengths he went to to clear them. But we're going to back up a little bit. As I mentioned, it's 1920. Sacco and Vanzetti were Italian immigrants living in Braintree, just south of Boston. Now, while these days it's the southernmost stop of the T, which is their subway system in Boston, at that time, it was still like a small town that had yet to be absorbed. Now, when I say small, I'm talking there were a total of three men in the police force, period, at that time. That's pretty small. (laughs) Yeah, quite. The big industry there was shoemaking. So most people worked in one of the two manufacturing plants that produced shoes. That meant that the payroll deliveries every Thursday were massive. And of course, at that time, everyone was paid in cash, which is something we talked about way back in the John Dillinger episode. On April 15th, a group of five guys in a blue car were loitering outside the American Express Company office in Braintree that the money passed through before being distributed to the factories. Around three o'clock that afternoon, two of the men in the car leapt out and accosted the guards delivering the money to the Slater and Morrill factory. These two men were later described by witnesses as being short and stocky and were heard speaking to each other in Italian before the attack. The guards were shot and killed and the blue car rolled up to collect the two gunmen before disappearing with the cash. Long story short, police were able to track down that blue car and connect it with two Italian men who were known anarchists, Sacco and Vanzetti. 
They were arrested while fleeing town on a streetcar headed for Brockton, each man with a loaded handgun in his possession. Sacco's gun was a match to the one used to kill one of the guards. It's also worth mentioning that Sacco was absent from his job on the day of the murders. Interestingly, I couldn't find any evidence against Vanzetti. The gun he was carrying wasn't used in the crime. There was no mention of him being off work that day. He was not short and stocky, as described by eyewitnesses, nor was he the owner of the car. Oh. The car's owner was actually another Italian immigrant named Mario Boda, who Sacco and Vanzetti claimed not to know. Basically, they were arrested for being Italian, and it was pure luck that they managed to get a guy with the same type of gun. Now, all that being said, I'm not saying there was absolutely nothing to build a case on, because modern forensics has proven that Sacco's gun was 100% the one used in the murder. And both men gave really implausible, bizarre answers during their initial interrogation by the police. But I'd say it was maybe 20% following the evidence and 80% straight up xenophobic, anti-immigrant beliefs that Mm. landed these men in jail. I see. Needless to say, this made for a very divisive case. And as I mentioned, it was the men's bombastic defense attorney who launched this one into the spotlight. Fred Moore was described at the time as a long-haired radical from California. So, <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah, I guess that's been the stereotype for a really long time, <laughs> like over 100 years at least. Yeah. His idea was that by politicizing the situation, he could turn this from an ordinary criminal trial into something more, and that with enough public outrage and support for his clients, he could guarantee their freedom no matter what, what happened in the courtroom. Hmm. He went into immigrant communities and to anarchist rallies to drum up outcry about the injustice being done to Sacco and Vanzetti. He appealed to blue-collar workers, saying, hey, these guys are just like you, but the bigwigs in government are going to throw them under the bus to cover up their own ineptitude. They're going to put them up against a wealthy, biased judge who doesn't care about fellows like you. He got the New England Civil Liberties Union on board, and they sent out letters to all of their members about the grave injustice being done to these two immigrants, against whom there was only circumstantial evidence at best. Moore himself even went so far as to send pamphlets over to Italy to drum up international attention, try to get the Italian community like defensive of their boys. Wow. Moore had just over a year to spread the word when the trial began on May 31st, 1921 in nearby Dedham, Massachusetts. Needless to say, there was a ton of press coverage. There were cops posted at every entrance to the courthouse to search people for weapons and stadies on horseback patrolled the streets for any sign of impending riots. All of the evidence was circumstantial at the time. They didn't have the sort of advanced forensics we do now, obviously. So the main argument was that Sacco had a gun and hat similar to the ones involved in the crime, and he and Vanzetti were both liars. That's the case. Okay. I'm just going to put it out there, but if you were arrested on your way to an anarchist rally, you'd probably lie your ass off to the cops, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my God, (laughs) like, you are an immigrant, you are an anarchist, and like Vanzetti, when they searched him, he had an anarchist pamphlet in his pocket that he had like penciled in notes on. Okay. So, you're going to be real squirrely dealing with the Boston cops. Forget it. I am a white lady. 
like many generations of American, I would not want to deal with the Boston cops, if I'm being <laughs> completely honest. For every eyewitness the prosecution presented, Moore was able to find two or more to refute the claims. Sacco was allegedly in Boston getting a passport at the time of the crime, while several people testified to being with Vanzetti an hour south in Plymouth selling fish that day. And again, this crime happened at three o'clock in the afternoon. This is not like you went about your day and came home and it's dark and, you know. Right. The trial wrapped on July 14th, after which the jury deliberated for about five hours, which is about how long it takes to fill out the paperwork. That's Mm. usually a bad sign. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Sacco and Vanzetti were found guilty and sentenced to death. There were immediate protests, not only in North America, but in South America and Europe as well. Wow. With the largest rallies of all going down in Italy and France. Somebody even set off a bomb at the American embassy in Paris as part of the unrest. Meanwhile, Moore poured his heart and soul into every single motion he could file to have their sentences overturned. Two years later, in 1923, Sacco fired Moore from the case after an attempted suicide landed Sacco in Bridgewater State Hospital for the criminally insane for five months. Vanzetti, on the other hand, was thriving in prison. His English improved remarkably, and he began writing a memoir and a series of poems that have been published. Hmm. Another two years later, a convict named Celestino Medeiros confessed to his participation in the robbery and murders. He gave a written confession implicating Mike Boda, a.k.a. Mario, who you may remember as the owner of the Buick that was known to be part of the crime. Right. And another man named Bill. He claimed not to know the names of the other two men involved, but one of them was most certainly Sacco. Mm-hmm. Medeiros was able to give a detailed account of the gang's movements that day. But when this new information was taken before a judge, he said it was unreliable and just moved on with his day. Jeez. Yeah, not worried about it. Right. When word of this got out, people were more pissed off than they ever were before. Now, this has been going on for four years. Once again, riots and unrest erupted on both sides of the Atlantic. Letters and telegrams poured in for Governor Alvin Fuller. He put together a committee to further investigate all of the claims being made by both sides. And ultimately, he denied clemency for both men. In response, the Sacco Vanzetti Defense Committee put out a call. Come by train and boat. Come on foot or in your car. Come to Boston. Let all the roads of the nation converge on Beacon Hill. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. As a supplement to their rallying cry, they also got a couple of petitions going around internationally for people who couldn't come to still show their support. This petition to free Sacco and Vanzetti amassed well over half a million signatures. Like, folks were fired up. Jeez, no kidding. On April 23rd, 1927, Sacco and Vanzetti were reunited for the first time since their trial, this time for their executions. It was a circus that day. Western Union had to install 18 new telegraph wires in Boston to handle the influx of news reports seeing, being sent out around the world, while machine guns were set up around the prison perimeter and approximately 515 officers from five different branches of law enforcement patrolled the streets. Whoa. Several thousand people gathered outside the prison to show their support to Sacco and Vanzetti, and Boston radio stations continued broadcasting well after their usual sign-off time to cover the executions, which would begin at midnight. 
while Sacco's last words were in support of anarchy and heartbreakingly a call for his mother when they flipped the switch. Vanzetti's final plea was much more elegant. Pausing just inside the death chamber, he said, I wish to say to you that I am innocent. I have never done a crime, some sins, but never any crime. I thank you for everything you have done for me. I am innocent of all crime, not only this one, but of all, all. I am an innocent man. According to FamousTrials.com, news of the execution sent hundreds of thousands of protesters into the streets across six different continents. So everybody was pissed except for Antarctica because there wasn't nobody there in 1920. (laughs) Tanks ringed the American embassy in Paris to fend off a riotous mob. In Geneva, over 5,000 protesters destroyed all things American, including cars, goods, and even theaters that were showing American movies. Violent demonstrations in Germany resulted in six deaths. This is a case that's still debated and studied today, and the general consensus is that while Sacco was 100% guilty, Vanzetti was just as innocent as he claimed. His only crime was being Italian and an anarchist while boarding the streetcar with someone he considered a friend. See, Just because he happened to be Italian and with Sacco, when the police showed up to arrest Sacco, he died. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) And that bummer concludes part two of the trials of the century. Wow. Um, I think going forward, I'm going to like start spacing these episodes out a little bit more. Just do them like every now and then. Okay. But I really needed to talk about Sacco and Vanzetti. Like I read about that and I was like, oh, that is fucked up. Oh, yeah. That's horrific. Yeah. It would happen today. Yeah. And 100%. Ha- yeah. The, the, those types of things happen all the time, which is all why so many people are against the death penalty. Yep. Because get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, great. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had so much fun. <laughs> I hope you partied your ass off. And if you did, um, go ahead and like and subscribe. Leave a comment, a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you use. You can also find us on YouTube and TikTok at Fantastic History Podcast. We are on Instagram at Fantastic HPod. Or you can send us an email at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com. I think that's everything. Is that everything? That's everything. My God, it's gotten so long. (laughs) Oh, we're also on uh, Etsy. Oh my! Oh yeah, (laughs) there's an Etsy. You know what? I think I'm gonna put up. I'm gonna put up some pro Vanzetti merch because I just feel like I need it. Sure. Great. All right. Um. Until next time. Bye. Bye.